This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship Summer Leadership Training back in 2019. The theme that summer was typology, studying the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. In this message, Pastor Dan Rood focuses on Adam and how even the beginning of the Bible points to Christ. We hope you find this encouraging. Okay. So here are the rules for tonight. The first rule is that you need to have a Bible in front of you. So either on your phone or a physical Bible, the real thing, no fake Bible. So I guess you can use a fake Bible on your phone if you want to, but have the Word of God in front of you because as we work our way through, what I hope is that you're not going to hear some ideas, but you'll see, you'll see God's Word. You'll see what God has to say. And uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to look at a couple of chapters in Genesis and then, Lord willing, we'll see how they point to Christ. And my hope is that we will leave here tonight refreshed by the gospel of God's grace. That's, that is my hope. Uh, there's a verse that's not in the PowerPoint, but it's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. I've been thinking about this verse all week. It says, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard. Why? So that we will not drift away. So that we will not drift away. So what is one of the keys to not drifting away? Well, it is to pay attention to what you already know. Most people need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. And as Christians, the Christian life is all about going down deeper into the gospel of grace. That's what it's all about. And something that's interesting about this phrase, we must pay attention. Uh, In the Greek, it's two words. The first word means extravagantly, magnificently, greatly. Extravagantly, magnificently, greatly. The second word means give attention. So some commentators say that a good translation of we must pay attention Really, a good translation would be, we must be obsessed. We must be obsessed with what we have already heard. And that is much of the struggle of the Christian life, is continuing to look at the gospel of grace and being being transformed by the gospel of grace. And so that's what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to look at the Old Testament and how the Old Testament points to Jesus. But let's go ahead and pray real quickly. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you really do love us. We thank you, Lord, that you went to the cross to bear our guilt, to bear our shame, to bear the punishment of our sin. And I thank you that three days later you rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And I thank you, Lord, that you're here with us now. And Lord, I know that these students, these young people, they are in a pivotal point in their lives. And I just, I pray, God, that you would just speak to them from your word. I pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might see you, that we might see how wonderful you are. And so we commit our time to you now. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When Jesus came onto the scene, he did not go to the Gentile world that had never heard about the God of the Bible, but he went to Israel. He went to the the people of God who knew the scriptures really well. The problem is that they did not understand Jesus in light of the Old Testament scriptures. In John chapter 5, verse 39, it says, You pour over the scriptures, which is the Old Testament scriptures, because you think 
you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. And so the Old Testament, what you see in the Old Testament is that Jesus says, the Old Testament points to me. The Old Testament points to me. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see Christ. Now, they knew the Old Testament, but they didn't see Christ because their heart was unwilling to come to Christ. And then in Luke 24, verse 25, it says, he said to them, how foolish you are. This is after his resurrection. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, look at verse 26. This is wild. He says, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. So what he's saying to his disciples after his resurrection is this. Hey guys, you should have been able to read the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and say, oh yeah, of course, Jesus. That's what you should have been able to do. You should have been able to read the Old Testament scriptures, all of them, and see how they point to me. And he rebukes them. He says, how, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He says, you guys, you're, something's wrong with your heart here. You're foolish and slow to believe. And his point is that the entirety of the Old Testament points to me. That's what he says. And so what we know is that, is that Jesus is the key not only to understanding the New Testament, but he is the key to understanding the Old Testament. That, that everything in the Old Testament, not literally every word, but all the truths in the Old Testament and the pictures, they point to Jesus. And so some Christians have said what we need to do as, as Christians is unhitch the Old Testament from Christianity. To just leave the Old Testament behind and let's just go to the New Testament so that we can understand grace and understand the cross we don't really need the Old Testament, but Jesus himself says that the Old Testament scriptures point to me. And so as Christians, we want to read the whole Bible and understand how the whole Bible points to one man, Jesus Christ. And the way to do this is not to read an Old Testament passage and then immediately say, this is how it points to Jesus. That's not the way to do it. There's, there's a process, and the process is that you want to understand how what the Old Testament scripture means in its original context. So understand the Old Testament in its context. There was an original audience that these books were written to. And so what you want to do with the Old Testament is understand what the Old Testament meant to the people who read it. Then you want to understand how the passage points to Jesus. So there's multiple layers in the Bible that point to Christ. So there was a, a, a now interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. It was written to a, a people, an audience, and God's word had application right now in the moment, but then it had a future application as well. So if you just do one without the other, I think you end up making some mistakes. So we wanna do both. We wanna understand what the Old Testament meant during that time period, what we can learn, and then understand how it points ultimately to Christ. And this is where we come to Genesis 1 through three. Now, there are three things we're going to look at from this passage. The first is the creation of Adam and Eve. The second is the fall of Adam and Eve. And third is the clothing of Adam and Eve. Now, we could spend weeks and weeks and months and months going through these first three chapters. I'm not even going to attempt to try to cover everything that we could cover, 
but I want, I want to pull out from this passage what, it, what the Lord is teaching, what he's saying, and then point to how, or see how it points to Christ. So let's start with the first one, which is the creation of Adam and Eve. So according to Genesis, on the sixth day, God made humanity. So I think we have a little, a little chart here, a little picture. I don't know how well you can see this, but in day one, day one God forms creation and he separates the, the light from the darkness. And I'm not gonna read all these, but on day six, you see that God, he ends up creating the human race. This is God's plan. This is what he does. Then in Genesis, or in Genesis 1.26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the, the livestock, the whole earth, and the, creature, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And so it, it says that God makes a decision. He says, let us. So you see the Trinity here, even in Genesis chapter one. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, what in the world does that mean? That we are made in the image of God. Well, I, I have a picture of my driver's license, if you wanna put this up here. So, you look at this driver's license. Here's the question, is that me? Is that, is that me? What's the answer? Yes and no, okay, we have a divided audience. The, the right answer is no, that's not me because I am me. So what that is, is a piece of plastic with ink on it that makes me look like a criminal of some sort, I guess. But there it is. That is the image of me. It's not me, it's the image of me. The image, of, at least, of my face. You can take that down now, so you don't have to keep looking at it, but that's the image of me. And so what God does, he makes this whole creation, he says, let, let us make man in our image. So he creates Adam and Eve. Now, what does he create them to do? He, he's very clear. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his, his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So God blessed them and, say, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So God creates male and female in his image, both in the image of God. And what are they created to do? Two things. First, rule over creation. Second, be fruitful, multiply. Now, be fruitful and multiply is very straightforward. Make babies and then fill the earth with my image. Multiply me in the earth all around the world. And the first one is rule over creation. The second one, be fruitful and multiply, is much easier in my mind to understand. I think this is very clear. But the, set, the, the first one, rule over creation, we don't think like this. If you're out on a walk and you see a rabbit, you don't look at that rabbit and say, you know, rabbit, I rule you. So go back to what you're doing now, I rule you. You don't, you don't think in those terms, or at least I don't. But it says that's what you were created to do. Do you see that? They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. You rule over everything. So why does God create man and woman? Why, does it, why is he doing this? Well, he, he creates 
man and woman in his image. So his image is gonna fill the earth. And then he's gonna share his rule and reign over creation with his image bearers. That's what he's doing. So there's no, at this point, there's no sin. There's no mission. There's no great commission here to, to go reach the world with the message of Christ. This is before Adam and Eve fall into sin. And he says, rule over creation and be fruitful and multiply. And so from the beginning, God creates mankind to share his image, rule over the earth, and be his image bearers. This is what he has created Adam and Eve to do. And this is so important because the world at this point is just filled with potential. It's still filled with potential. And what they're supposed to do is go into the world and harness that potential for good. Harness the potential of the earth for good. So here is God's plan before sin enters the world through Adam and Eve. Then in chapter two, he actually creates Adam. He creates him out of the dust. And then he looks at his creation and says, Adam, it is not good for you to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone, verse 18. I will make a helper corresponding to him. And so this is pretty amazing because after day one, he looks at, God looks at what he has done and he says, it's good. Day two, looks at everything he's done, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. But here in chapter two, it says that the Lord looks at the fact that Adam is alone, and he says, it's not good. It's not good for a man to be alone. He says, I will make a helper corresponding to him. And what we need to see is that everything in Genesis two points to the idea that Adam and Eve were designed for each other. God says, I will make a helper corresponding to him or suitable for him. And so Eve was made just right for Adam and Adam for Eve. That they were made for each other. We are not to understand Adam and Eve as simply two human beings. They're just two humans. They are two human beings created in the image of God that were created for each other. I will make, I will find a helper suitable for him, corresponding to him. And what that means is that for Adam, certain aspects of, of, of humanity, the human experience, come alive when he meets Eve. So as a single man, he's walking around the earth, it says that God gave him the task of naming the animals, so he's naming the animals, he's doing his thing, and he can experience life, and he can experience a relationship with God, he can know God, walk with God, and that is great. But God says, That's, uh, it's not good for a man to be alone. And so he makes Eve, and when Adam and Eve come together, and they make one, it's like there's this, as Aladdin says on the magic carpet ride, there's this whole new world, okay, that comes alive for Adam and Eve by virtue of being together. And this is what we are supposed to see, that they were made for each other. Now, how does God make Eve? He makes Eve differently than he made Adam. Verse 21 says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken, then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And so what, what we see here is that we're supposed to catch that Eve was made from the rib. Eve was made from the rib. He says it twice. God took one of his ribs, then the Lord God made the rib he had taken into the woman and brought the woman to the man. 
And oftentimes when people read this verse, they just keep moving on. They're like, oh yeah, duh. God just knocks Adam out, takes one of his ribs, and then makes Eve. I mean, how else would he have done it? But I think this is actually really important to understand. Like, we're getting information about how God created the world. So why does this matter? Why does it matter that Eve, Adam's made from the dust, Eve's made from the rib? Well, imagine if verse 21 read this way. This is a fake verse. But verse 21 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God shaved Adam's back and used his back hair to make Eve. Like, how would that read to you? How would it feel? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it feel different to you? You'd say, wait a second. Wait a moment. But from a substance perspective, if God could use a rib, he could just use back hair. It's not like, a cha- he's not like, well, there, it's got to be a rib, or I can't do it. He's not challenged that way. So he could do whatever he wants to do, but he uses a rib. Why? Well, the rib itself points to the design of God in marriage. So where does a, where does a woman belong in relationship to a man? In marriage, where does she belong? Does she belong ahead of him? Does she belong behind him? The answer is that she belongs right next to him, right by the side. So there's this picture of Adam and Eve standing side by side. That's where God makes Eve from the rib that they might stand side by side. I think this is clearly the design of God that Adam and Eve stand in relationship to God, in the image of God. They stand together side by side, worshiping God. And verse 25 says, both the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. So Adam and Eve, they were naked, totally naked, totally bare, open, exposed, and they felt no shame. And this nakedness is not something that is just physical. This, is, this would almost just be a weird thing to include if it was just a physical thing. But the nakedness that's talked about here is, is complete openness, complete transparency. You're not hiding anything from, they weren't hiding anything from each other. There are no secrets, no shame. They were, they were fully known by each other. Nothing was withheld from each other. And they still accepted each other. They loved each other. It is a beautiful picture of what God intends the, the mingling of two people where two become one and they share life together. And so Genesis begins with two sinless people created in the image of God, living in a good world, created for each other, experiencing oneness in every way, no hiding, no secrets, no clothing, no shame, just love and acceptance. And they have a mission, rule and multiply. Rule and multiply. And this is where we see the plot line start to come together. So here's the question. Will they live as image bearers of God or as God? Will they live as image bearers of God or as God? Will they steward creation under God's rule or will they run the world on their own terms? This is, this is going to be the test for Adam and Eve who are created in the image of God. God has given them a mission. He's given them a purpose. He's given them a command. And the question is, will they do it under his authority? Will, will they let God define what is good and what is evil? Or will they take power for themselves? 
In Genesis chapter three, we see the answer to this question. We see how Adam and Eve fall into sin, which is the second point, the fall of Adam and Eve. And I wanna say that there is so much, there's so much information here. There's so many things that we could learn from this passage that it would take forever and ever and ever to go through it about the, the template for temptation. But we just don't have time. So I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna highlight a few things about how this temptation works. I just can't restrain myself, so I have to do this here. So verse one says this, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? Did God really say that? And if you compare what God says with what, with what Satan says, God says, it is radically different. Genesis 2.16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Do you see what Satan says, God says? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Verse 16 says, The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so what what Satan is doing here is giving the impression that God is far more restrictive than what he actually is. Did God really say you can't eat from, did I hear that right? Think about how restrictive God is. Look at all these trees. Did I hear that right? God says you can't eat from any of them. Can't eat from any tree in the garden. It's not even close. And so from, right from the beginning, we see that Satan is mishandling the word of God, which is an assault on God's word. It is an assault on the very character of God to put this lie in the mind of Eve that God is so restrictive. And you think, why is Satan doing this? Why doesn't he just come right out from the beginning and say, hey, hey Eve, uh, I am Satan. I am here to ruin your life. He doesn't do that. He comes with a pretense of innocence. I'm just, I'm just seeking some clarity here. I just need a little bit of clarity on what God said. Is that what God said? And he does this so that Eve is not alert to the danger that she is in. He, he, he does not want to sound the, the alarm too soon so that Eve knows the danger that she's in. So by, by this pretense of innocence, it allows for Eve to engage with what's going on. And when you look at this, it's obvious that Eve is in grave danger. And when you see people who are in real danger, it, it elicits a response. I don't know how you, how you think or feel when you see people in danger, but my immediate response is to deal with it. Like, I hate seeing people in danger. I saw these, a few pictures. We're going to go through a couple quick pictures here. Have you seen this picture before? So there's a little elk, and, and he takes a picture, but there's a mountain lion right behind him. So just like the south side of Des Moines, I guess. <laughs> The mountain lion. Or here's a, here's a picture. This is a real bear. And this is a Russian advertising agency. And this is part of what they do. If you want to go to the next slide here, or the next slide here, or the next slide here. I don't know how you feel when you see that. But everything inside of me says, this is just outrageous. You are, you are actually in real danger right now. It was funny, one of the comments underneath these pictures said, these are Russians, so maybe the bear is actually in danger, which I thought was pretty good. But, <clears throat> <laughs> but 
But you see that and you're like, oh my goodness. See, there's this, there's a pretense of safety. Hey, it's all, it's all good. It's all good. So this little kid is walking around. If you want to go to the previous picture here, the previous one, or maybe it's the next one. There it is. It's like this little girl is on this bear. And you think, oh, there's so much danger here. But there's this illusion of safety. And I think that that is what is happening in the garden. At least at first, it's like, hey, no threat here, Eve. We're okay. Everything's all right. I just need clarity about the word of God. And oftentimes, that's how false teachers begin to break into churches. They just come in, they'll just say, hey, I just need some clarity about something. Can we dialogue about this? And sometimes it's legitimate and sometimes it comes from the pit of hell. Now look at Eve's response. So Satan mishandles the word of God, verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So Eve's response is pretty good, but I don't know if you noticed this or not. But Eve also mishandles the word of God. So Satan starts by mishandling the word of God and then Eve responds by mishandling the word of God. Now what what does Eve do? Well, she adds something. God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. That's not what God says. Eve adds or touch it. And so a number of commentators have wondered if when Satan is making God out to be far more restrictive than what he actually is, if this begins to seep into Eve's mind by adding an additional restriction onto the word of God. Now, there's probably a lot of things that it means. I don't know for sure. I just noticed that Eve mishandles the word of God. Then in verse four, Satan takes off the the pretense of innocence and goes right for the jugular. He starts to show his true colors. In verse four, no, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. This is just an outright rejection of God's word. It's just a clear rejection of God's word. God is lying to you. You will not die. God has not told you the truth, Eve. And what's interesting about this is that the first doctrine denied in the Bible is what? The doctrine of divine judgment. You will not die. Your sin does not equal death. You will not die. And that is the lie that is in the world today everywhere you go. There are no consequences for your sin. You will not die. You will not die. You will not die. It's just a fear tactic that people are trying to use to get control of your life. You will not die. It's a fear. That's all that it is. It is a fear tactic. So is it a fear tactic? When God says, if you eat from this tree, you're going to die? Well, the answer is yes, it is a fear tactic. Because it's the truth. It'd be like dismissing a doctor for saying you have cancer. I mean, you have tumors coming out of your neck. And the doctor says, hey, you've got cancer. If you don't deal with it, you're going to die. It'd be like rejecting the doctor's advice by saying, you know what, doctor? I'm not going to listen to you. That's just a fear tactic. You'd say, no, 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 no. It's about, is it true? If a doctor looks at you and says, you have tumors coming out of your head. You've got to deal with them or you're going to die. Is that a fear tactic? Well, I guess in one sense it's, it is, but it's just the truth. And so Satan is striking at the root of who God is, the holiness of God. There are no consequences for your disobedience. God does not care. He's just lying to you. He's withholding good 
from you. Verse five says, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So God is far more restrictive than you can imagine. And God is withholding good from you. He's withholding from you. If you do it God's way, you're gonna miss out on life. You're gonna miss out. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, you know what, by doing what God is asking me to do, I'm really missing out? That's a lie from the devil. That's what it is. I remember thinking that all the time. I remember thinking, oh, if I do this, if I do life God's way, I'm missing out. God is, God's commands are keeping me from, from good. But the truth is that God, God is withholding from you. Do you know that? He is withholding from Adam and Eve here. But what is he withholding? Does anyone know the answer? Death. He's withholding death from you. He's withholding misery from you. And so all of God's commands, everything he says, aims to bring you life and joy, all of it. Everything, every command that God gives us comes from the heart of our creator who loves us. You know, I'm not a perfect dad or close to it, but every single intention in my heart towards my kids is for their good. Like everything, everything in me, it's just for their good, for their good, for their good. For, I want their good. Now, I'm imperfect, but my, my heart is for their good. I'm, I never think to myself, well, I hope they don't tie their shoes today so they trip and fall down the steps. I don't do that, I promise. I don't think that way. But sometimes that's the way we treat God. And that's what Satan is trying to put into the mind of Eve. In fact, Eve, let me tell you about God. He knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's withholding from you. And I think this is one of the greatest lies you need to reconcile, you need to deal with in your mind. This is one of the aspects of God's character that you need to be firm on, clear on, that God's commands are the way to life. That God's word is the way that we know him and the way we enjoy him. And keeping his word allows us to walk with him even more closely. And if that is in your mind, it's, it's moving around in your mind, hovering around in your mind that God's commands are withhold, they're, they're keeping good from me, you will be overly tempted. There's gotta be clarity in your soul that the way to life is to know God and to obey his commandments. So God is not withholding anything from Adam and Eve and he does not withhold anything good from us, but he will withhold death and pain. Now, here's a principle you need to see in the passage. Here is a very important principle in understanding the way temptation works in your life. So how does temptation work in your life? Here's the principle. Lies influence eyes. What is Satan's goal here? Satan's goal is that he wants Adam and Eve to fall, and the way that he's doing it is by lying, and the goal of the lie is to influence their eye so that they see it. They see the world differently now. So look at Eve's response in verse three. When Satan first lies to her. Verse three. But about the fruit in the, in the 
of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So how does Eve view the tree? Can you tell me? How does Eve view the tree in the middle of the garden? She sees it as what? Danger, death. It is death. That tree is my death. Now, after the lie creeps into her mind, gets into her mind, what does it do to her eyes? Verse six. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So what happens is that that lie comes in and it acts like a lens that you see the world through. And so now she sees death as what? Good. It is good for food. It is delightful to look at. And just as a woman, I need to pursue a wise life. It's desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she takes the fruit, eats it, gives it to her husband. And there's Adam, and he's standing with her, not doing anything. Just like a clown. I don't know if clowns do that or not, but you know what I'm saying here. He's a clown. See, people pick death because they think it's life. They, they, they choose death because they think it's life. It's good. It's what's going to give me goodness, life. And so the battle is fought really at the level of your eyes. How do you see the world? How do you see the world? And see, if Adam and Eve were, were humble before God and walking with God and conscious with God, they, they could have said to each other, they could have said, hey, um, you know, Adam could have said to Eve, hey, Eve, isn't it weird that a snake is talking right now? Don't you think that's a little bit weird? Or maybe why don't we ask God what he says? Is, that, is this really true? But they're too far gone. At least Eve is too far gone and she sees the tree differently. She just says, no, this is good and God is good and he wants good for me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. Which leads to the third point, which is the clothing of Adam and Eve. <clears throat> it is the clothing of Adam and Eve. Now here's a question for you. Do, do you remember what, what we talked about at the beginning? Adam and Eve made in the image of God, made for each other. They're made to worship God, know God, enjoy God, walk with God. They're made to be fruitful and multiply, to rule over the world, rule over the earth. And it says they were naked and they felt no shame. What a powerful thing. I mean, people, people today are so burdened with the shame that comes from their choices. Oh my goodness. And so you think to yourself, okay, so God's intention is this unity, union, no, no clothing, total transparency between Adam and Eve, but then they sin. Now here's the question, what is the first and most immediate consequence of sin in the world, as recorded in Genesis chapter three? What is the first and most immediate consequence? Verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So their immediate impulse, once, once they had sinned, was that their eyes were open, they knew they were naked, and they cover themselves. 
They cover themselves with fig leaves. Now, this is really important. Because naturally, we cover ourselves. Everyone here is wearing clothing. We're all wearing clothing. Now, why do we wear clothing? And why would Adam and, why would that be their first impulse? Well, was it the weather? No, they're in paradise. They don't, they don't need clothing in order to be comfortable. Did they have ugly bodies that they needed to cover up because their bodies were not attractive? Nope, they had perfect bodies. Was it other people that they needed to hide themselves from? Nope, there are, there are no other people. It's just Adam and Eve. And they certainly are not hiding from the animals. Like, they're not thinking, we need to... Hide from the judgmental, body-shaming hippos and giraffes that, that rule or run around in the garden. Like, that's not what they're thinking. They're not like, oh, don't look at me, lion, or whatever. That's not what's happening. So why do they cover up? Well, the first and most immediate consequence of sin is that Adam and Eve begin hiding from each other. They hide from each other. And this is really problematic because they're violating the design of God. They're created to be naked and unashamed, but now they're naked and they're ashamed, so they cover. And so the pattern, since this point in human history, this is the natural progression in marriage. Here it is. What you do is you sin, then you hide. You sin, and then you hide. You sin, and then you hide. This is just the way that the world works. And this is why marriage can be so difficult. It can be so difficult because when we disobey God, it doesn't, it doesn't leave our relationship intact. It might be against God. I mean, they just ate a piece of fruit. That's all that they did. I mean, if they were selling black tar heroin to children or something, you'd say, well, that's bad. Bad, Adam and Eve. But what did they do? They just ate a piece of fruit. I mean, why is the fruit even there? I mean, it's not a big deal. And the immediate consequence of disobeying God is that now their relationship is disrupted. And this is real. This is real. Don't raise your hands. Don't just sit on them. But you think about how divorce has touched your life. You think about how it's touched your life. Either in your family or with your parents or someone close to you. It it just, this fracturing of the relationship between man and woman in marriage is so difficult, so painful. Why does it happen? We sin against God and we hide from each other. So the first and most immediate consequence of sin is that we hide from each other. The second is that Adam and Eve hide from God. This is the flow of thought in Genesis 3. Look at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now they're hiding from God. Verse 9. So the Lord God called out to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. Now, this is really important. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He's not naked. 
I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. He's not naked. He's wearing clothing. He, he has his fig outfit on or whatever he would have called it. This is, he's wearing his fig outfit. So what is he talking about? Well, between Adam and Eve, there's the physical nakedness they cover physically. But when Adam and Eve are in the presence of God, Adam is sensing a much deeper nakedness, a much more devastating nakedness. It is to be exposed by the God who created you and the God who knows you. That type of nakedness is devastating. Spiritual nakedness. Verse 11, then God asked, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God never asks questions to gain information. He's not asking because he's wondering what's going on. He's, he's giving information to Adam and Eve. Now, when God asks this question, it's a very simple question. What should Adam say? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Just that second question. What's, just give me what should Adam say? Yes, that's really simple. Or he could say two words, I did, yes, very simple. Now let's look at Adam's response. The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. And when you look at verse 12, if you get into the original Hebrew, what you can see and hear is that there is a bus coming down the road and Adam takes Eve and throws her under the bus, and then the bus tramples Eve, splatters her body on the street. She's destroyed. Just throws her. I'll move on from that. So Adam blames Eve. Who else does he blame? God takes guts. The woman you gave me, you, you gave me, she gave me some fruit, and I ate. You know, God, I went to bed single, and I woke up with this woman. I, I, I just don't remember asking for this woman. You gave her to me. Verse 13. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she blames the serpent. Now here's the question. Why do they do this? Why do they blame? Why are they blaming? Why is Eve saying Satan and Adam saying God and Eve? Why do you do this? Well, just like the figs are a picture of covering up before each other, in front of each other, they're covering their bodies physically with fig leaves. But how do you hide from God? How do you hide your nakedness before God? By blaming someone. You blame their fault. 
They did that to me. This is what they said. This is how they acted. And what you're doing when you blame... Now, in one sense, Eve is part of the problem. So when Adam says, God, you gave her to me, there is some truth to it. But at its core, it is an excuse for his disobedience. Do you see that? It is, it's a way to hide his disobedience because what, remember, what should he have said? Did you eat from the tree? What's the answer? Yes. What comes next? Death. That's why. He, he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to excuse himself. He's trying to get away from the death penalty. He, he's, he's trying to cover. He's trying to hide and point. Take the attention away from me. Get it away from me. Put it on someone else. And Eve is doing the same thing. Put it on him. Put it on the devil. And this is the human experience. And this is what people do. This is what people do with religion. Religion, so much of a religion is, it's a way to say, when God, when God looks at you, it says, hey, did you lie? And you say, this week I went to church, I read my Bible, I was really good to this little old lady, and yes, I did. Just take that into consideration. Or I did lie, but I grew up in a home where my parents didn't teach me how to tell the truth, or whatever. We do it with religion, we do it with our good deeds, we do it by blaming other people, and that covering is so, so powerful. Do you know why people hate the gospel? One of the reasons people hate the gospel? It, it's because it pulls people's clothing off. It, it pulls off what they're using to hide themselves. So you can't hide behind that. God says, I just, did you look at porn? That's all I, that's the question. I don't care why, did you do it? Did you lie? Did you gossip? If you just say yes, it's like standing naked. It's horrible. And the sh you feel the weight and the shame of your own behavior. So human nature, just like you have a, an instinct to cover your body with clothing when other people are around. That instinct is a picture of our reality, uh, of what's going on in our heart before God, that there's a much deeper reality where we must cover ourselves before God or we can't live with ourselves. And so God says, well, here's the consequence. And in verse 16... Here's Eve's consequence. He said to the woman, I'll intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. So now giving birth is going to be painful. It is, it is a painful experience. And then the second half of this is, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. This is, this is a verse that if you can get it in your brain, it'll help you understand what's going on in marriage. This is part of the curse. You, Eve, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. What is the problem here? What is the problem with having a desire? Well, this word is used in Genesis chapter 4. <clears throat> you can look it up. 
But what this word is, is that it means it's an over-desire. That part of the curse, just like giving birth to babies, is painful. Your desire now, ladies, will be too strong for your husband. Yet he will rule over you. It is a desire to come up over. It's a desire to rule over your husband. And this has entered the world because of sin. And this is what happens in marriage. Is that when you take a sinful fallen man and a sinful fallen woman and you put them together in marriage and you have the curse, which is your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. That side of the curse mixed with the sinful man, you are cruising for a bruising, as they say. And let me explain why. Because a sinful man will respond to the desire of her husband one of two ways naturally. The first way is what I call tuck-tail Tommy. You will be a tuck-tail Tommy. And you'll take your tail and you'll put it between your legs and you will cower. And you'll say, just shut up. Just shut up. Fine. And the woman wears the pants. It's the way that it works. Just shut up. Then the other side is rage monster Randy. And he says, I will make you shut up. And many men, they oscillate between the two. Tucktail Tommy, rage monster Randy, and they go back and forth, back and forth. That's why the number one call to police every day across the country is what? Domestic violence. It's because Rage Monster Randy says, no more. Shut up. And I'm not, and just for the sake of clarity, I'm not justifying that even 1%. It's 0% justifiable. It's evil. But that's what's going on in marriage. And so there's, there's no real solution in the flesh. But there are a few glimmering, bright lights that point to Christ. And I just, I want to show you a few of them. Otherwise, it's just too depressing. (laughs) It's too depressing. So here's the first one. We'll get into this. In verse 21, it says, The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, this verse is so weird. It is so weird. So you have that whole exchange, creation, fall. They're going to get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But before he kicks them out, he says, Adam and Eve, I've got to change your clothes. It's like, what? Why does he care about their clothing here? Why does he care about their clothing? Because he does. He cares about how they're dressed. Genesis 2.17 says, But you must not eat from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat it, you will certainly die. You will die. But Adam and Eve did not die on that day. And people say, no, they did. They did die. They died spiritually. I, he's talking about you're just dead. You're done. So did they die? The answer is yes, and the answer is no. They did die spiritually but they did not die physically. So is God a liar? 
No, he's not a liar. So what does he do here? Well, three things, quickly. It'll go fast. Number one, Jesus overcame sin in the desert. So God's plan is he's going to send his son into the world. And Romans 5 talks about how he's the second Adam who comes into the world. And what does Jesus do? Well, he overcomes temptation in the desert. And there's this, this little chart or whatever you want to call it, if you can put this up here. And you see the contrast, Adam and Jesus. And you see Adam is in a perfect creation. Jesus is in a fallen creation. Adam's in a, in a garden, which is pretty amazing. But he's in the desert, wilderness. It says that Adam, he named the wild animals. Jesus lived among the wild animals, or at least for that time period. Adam was well fed. Jesus had fasted 40 days. Adam had a sinless companion. Jesus was alone. Adam sinned. Jesus obeyed. And this is how Jesus kicks off his ministry. As he goes into this place of intense temptation and he wins. He's tempted by the devil and he wins. That's how he starts. Because see, if Jesus cannot overcome temptation, then he is, he is of no value to us. He's no good for us unless he can overcome sin because see, that's what Adam did. He couldn't overcome sin. The second way it points, the second way Adam points to Jesus is that Jesus obeyed God about the tree. Jesus obeyed God about the tree. Genesis 2 says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So here's what he says. Here's the command about the tree. Don't eat. So he says, obey me about the tree. Don't eat and you live. And you live. So obey me about the tree and you live. But the second Adam comes into the world and God the Father gives the Son a command about a tree. But he says, Son, obey me about the tree, and you die. Go to your death. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see Jesus wrestling with the command. He says, take the cup from me. Take the, I don't want it. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. Your will be done. That's what was in his heart. And so Jesus obeys God about the tree. I think this is one of the reasons Paul in Galatians 3 picks up this idea that Jesus, he hung on a tree. He became our curse by hanging on a tree. The third way Adam points to Jesus is that Jesus hung naked so we could be clothed. Jesus hung naked so that we could be clothed. Matthew 27, 35 says, after crucifying him, they divided his clothing by casting lots. So here's Jesus. He is naked. He's hanging naked on the cross. And while he's there suffering, he is experiencing the full weight of the sin of the world. That's what he's doing. He is experiencing the shame. He's experiencing the wrath of man and the wrath of God that people are spitting on him. They're beating him. 
They're mocking him. Come down off the cross if you're really loved by God. And Jesus hung naked on the cross, bearing the shame, the hatred of men, the wrath of God that we deserve. Because remember what God says to Adam? He says, did you eat? And how does Adam clothe himself? By blaming? But God is not persuaded by that. He doesn't say, okay, that's not what happens. And so many people, that's how they try to hide from God is by their good deeds. They try to hide by blaming other people. But nevertheless, this is what God's word says. The wages of sin is death. And if you stand before God, Hebrews talks about how you stand naked before God, before your creator, before the one that you have to give an account, and he will ask you, what did you do with my commands? And clothing yourselves with your good deeds won't cut it. Clothing yourselves with figs won't covet, cut it. Clothing yourself by blaming other people won't cut it. The only thing that can satisfy God is the death of an innocent person. And so in the garden, if you look back at Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says, The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So I think this is what God did. As he's getting ready to send them out of the garden, he says, Adam and Eve, come here. And he says, you deserve death. Figs won't cut it. Your excuses won't cut it. Only the death of an innocent animal will cut it here. Your sin demands death. Here's death. Dead animal. Blood shed. And they wear those skins. And this is one of the many ways that Genesis points to Christ that one day God would send an innocent sacrifice, an innocent substitute, not only to die for the sins of Adam and Eve, but to die for the sins of the world. And to become a Christian is not to be clothed with animal skins, but it is to be clothed with the very righteousness of God. But see, Jesus, he hung naked on the cross for you so that you could be clothed with his very righteousness and that is our hope isn't that our hope as Christians that is our hope what is our confidence before God what, what confidence do we have before God in ourselves we have no confidence our only confidence our only hope is that there was an innocent sacrifice on my behalf that was that was killed, his blood was shed that I might be forgiven, that I might be clothed in his righteousness. And so even in Genesis, the fall of Adam and Eve, it points to Christ. Now just to close a couple quick things, I just feel like I want to say this. I'm probably going too long. So if you're sleeping, you can wake up now. You can wake up. <laughs> but here we go. Two, I just want to, just two things. Two, okay. One is that this is our only hope for marriage. Right here. This is our hope for marriage. Is that you, husband, and you, wife, must learn to be clothed 
with the righteousness of Christ. That's it. That's your only hope. Because could you think about Adam and Eve, they leave the garden and all they do if they're wearing fig leaves is they just blame each other. Adam, what did you do? Why didn't you say something? And Eve blames Adam. Adam says, Eve, what did you do? Why are you talking to the talking snake? What are you thinking? And they would eat each other alive. But because of these animal skins, you know what you can do? You know what they could do? Adam can look right at Eve and say, Eve, I'm sorry for what I did. I deserve death. But God has provided a substitute on my behalf. I'm sorry. And Eve can look at Adam and say, Adam, what I did deserves death. But God has provided a substitute on my behalf. So I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And Adam and Eve, individually before the Lord, they can say, Lord, when, when God says, did you eat from the tree? Adam and Eve can say, yes. Thank you for providing an innocent substitute on my, on my behalf. And apart from that, I don't know what hope there is for marriage. Because you know what you're going to have? Wives, women. You're going to look at all these things with your husband. And you're going to see all these things that are wrong. And you're going to be stupid. But you're going to blame him. And you can't forgive. And husbands, you will do the exact same thing. And so what you can do in your marriage, this has been revolutionary in our marriage. We've done this since we got married. Is that we do not... In our apologies, we do not use any excuses. So even if you're only 10% wrong in your mind, you take 100% responsibility for your sin and you do not point. You know what that means? Let me give you a picture. It's like standing naked for your spouse. It's, that's, like what it's, that's what it feels like. And cl- what clothing is, it's blaming that person or blaming your spouse. But see, you just come to your spouse and you just say, baby, what I did was wrong and I deserve to die. That's what you say. I'm sorry for my rotten attitude today. It's a sin against God and I know it, it impacts our relationship. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And sometimes I'm thinking, but you said that and you did. But you say, no, 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 that's clothing. I don't want, I want to be naked with my wife. That's, I want to be naked with people. I want to have clothing on all the time. <laughs> with people. Not with my wife, but you know what I'm saying. But that's, I, I want to live that way. That's our hope. Do, do you see that? So, 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 ladies, what do you do? I sinned against you and against God, and I deserve death. I know it's messed up, our relationship. Please forgive me. 
That's how you live. That's how you live before God. You just, oh God. That's the only way you can relate to God. I sinned against you. Thank you for forgiving me. Changes everything. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.